Hola, and welcome to New Books in Latino Studies, a channel within the New Books Network. I am your host, Tiffany Gonzalez, and today on the program, we have Dr. Cynthia Roscoe, professor in the Department of History, Humanities, and Social Sciences at Eastern New Mexico. She is the author of No Mexicans, Women, or Dogs Allowed, The Rise of Mexican-American Civil Rights Movement, published with UT Press, and she is here to discuss her new book, Agent of Change, Ad de las Las Vento, Mexican-American Civil Rights Activist and Feminist in Texas, published with UT Press in 2020. Hello, Cynthia, and welcome to the New Books in Latino Studies. So happy to hear from you, and it's an honor to have you on today's episode for the New Books Network. Well, thank you for having me. It's nice to be here on a sunny Monday day. Absolutely. Um, So before we dive into discussing your new work, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your personal and professional background? Yes. um, I was born in Cuero, Texas, which is about uh, 70 miles from San Antonio. Both of my parents were from Mexico. Uh, My parents both immigrated to South Texas, my mother in the 1920s as a dreamer, and my father in the 1950s. And then they moved to Cuero and raised six children. And uh, we were fortunate to grow up in the time of the Chicano movement, and therefore there were a lot of college opportunities. And uh, I attended college uh, at Southwest Texas State University my first year, and then I went on to the University of Texas at Austin for three years and uh, graduated with special honors in history. Uh, I actually wrote a senior honors thesis in which I use the papers of the woman who I have now finished this biography of, Adelis Las Vento. And uh, from there, in 1980, I went on to UCLA and obtained both my master's and my doctorate at UCLA. And actually, while I was a graduate student, I also um, had moved back to Texas to conduct dissertation research and ended up working as a research associate for the Handbook of Texas. And I wrote 80 articles on Tejano and Tejana history uh, for that encyclopedia. And uh, I conducted all of my dissertation research in Texas. Uh, And after I finished the uh, dissertation, uh, I worked for a year at the Institute of Texan Cultures in San Antonio. Uh, which is a museum uh, and educational center. And then I went on to teach at the University of Texas in San Antonio. Uh, Then I had a postdoc at uh, UT Austin, uh, where I conducted more research for the No Mexicans uh, book. And then I uh, got another postdoc and went to the University of New Mexico, where I conducted research on um, LULAC in New Mexico. LULAC means the League of United Latin American Citizens, which is the oldest Hispanic or Latino civil rights organization in the nation, and which uh, Adelis Las Vento, again, the topic of my book, uh, which she was familiar with. And uh, anyway, so shortly after uh, that, I taught at the University of uh, uh, Uni- University of New Mexico in Albuquerque, and then I came to Redoso, Eastern New Mexico University, and I've been here now for about twenty years. Thanks for that. And and it seems from your life trajectory um, and your professional trajectory that has really shaped your research agenda. And I, I'm, of course, I've known you for. Over the years, you've spoken about your research and your upbringing where you are right now. But reading this new work, I got a little bit more insight in how um, this new work is, you're personally connected to it through her family, through Adela's um, family. Can you tell us a little bit more about this and how you ended up meeting her? Yes. um, This is probably one of the unique aspects of this particular book is that way back in 1978, I took my first Chicano history class at the University of Texas at Austin. And we had to write a research paper 
a 20-page research paper. And because of that, I actually uh, met the um, met the the son of Adelislas Vento, who was Dr. Arnoldo Vento. And Dr. Vento was head of Mexican American Studies in Austin. And he told me after I mentioned to him that I was conducting research on the history of the LULAC organization, that his mother had just written a book about Alonso Perales, the founder of LULAC. And interestingly enough, he said, well, that's so exciting. And uh, I would like you to meet my mother and she has materials and you should meet her. So he set up a meeting uh, for me to meet her. She lived in Edinburgh, Texas, in the Valley at the time. And consequently, um, I went down to meet her. And right away, she says, oh, I have archives. And here they are, and come and use them. And uh, by that time, I was already writing a senior honors thesis on the history of LULAC, the origins of LULAC, and nobody had done that at the time. And in fact, there were no LULAC archives at all in the library until, I'd say, the, uh, around 1980. And part of the um, movement to create those archives actually came from some of my contacts with Ruben Bonilla, who was the national uh, uh, director of LULAC at the time, and he was from Corpus Christi. Um, anyway, so... What happened essentially was that um, I met Adela Slasvento, and while she shared some of her archives with me, she really did not talk to me about her own activism. And she basically told me, oh, I knew Alonso Perales. Oh, I also knew J.T. Canales, who was another founder of LULAC. And I also knew personally uh, J. Lou Sines, another major founder of LULAC. But she never told me I was an activist. I was a writer. Look at me. Look at what I have done. Look what I did. And why don't you write about me? And so she basically deflected attention from herself. And so I really did not realize how important she was until decades later, and it's quite ironic. And so essentially what happened is, of course, I went on to uh, finish the senior honors thesis, which was on the Harlingen Convention, the 1927 event in which Mexican-American civil rights activists gathered together, uh, Mexican and Mexican-Americans gathered together, all men, to discuss which civil rights organization they should use at the statewide level and expand, and whether or not Mexican immigrants should be permitted at all. Now, that convention she was aware of, and she actually had materials about it. And so mm -hmm. her archives are actually the best collection on the Harlingen Convention. And her archives are even better than any of the people all men who attended that event because she kept newspaper clippings. Now, the other important thing about Adela Las Vento is that she was a really, by that time, I was, I'm also going to call her a Chicana feminist, meaning by the 70s, she, because she was born in 1901 and died in 1998. But by the 1970s, she was still continuing her activism. And her assistance to me was actually part of her recognition of Chicana feminism, meaning that she recognized that women were able and capable, intelligent, and that they could be uh, important aspects or assets rather to a movement. So she helped me in an effort to advance Chicano and Chicana historians. And she connected me uh, with uh, Alonso Perales' wife, 
uh, Marta Perales, who was still alive and living in San Antonio. Now, Perales actually had died in 1960. And what happened is that um, Adelos Los Vento, by 1977, realized that nobody had written a book about Perales, although the, he was the major founder of LULAC, although he had been probably the third Tejano attorney in the state, although he had been a U.S. diplomat. And she recognized that no historian had done so, no other LULAC activists had done so. So she decided to write that book about Alonso Perales, the first major biography of Perales in 1977. So she was well aware of his archive. She had her own archive, and then he had his. And she knew that his archive was boxes and boxes of materials. And so she sent me to San Antonio. She wrote a letter to uh, Mrs. Perales uh, introducing her to me. And then Mrs. Perales invited me to her home. And so in the late 70s, um, I was the first person to use the Perales archive. And actually, the Perales archive did not end up in a major university archive in professional care until about uh, 2007 or so. So <laughs> I was a few decades ahead of others, although there had been uh, numerous attempts by various Chicano uh, archives after the 1970s to get the Perales papers. Uh, the family was afraid. The family also was unfamiliar with professional arch archiving uh, efforts. And so, unfortunately, it wasn't until Mrs. Perales died that the children were able to take the archives and actually put them into a professional archive. So what happened then is that uh, after... Uh, the Arte Publico Press, the um, Latino literary uh, Hispanic recovery effort in Houston, after they obtained the papers, uh, they promised a public conference uh, for, uh, for a conference about Perales. And because there were boxes and boxes of materials, and I'm thinking that there are, if I'm recalling correctly, I'm thinking that there's 11,000 documents in the Perales collection that is now at the University of Houston at the MD Anderson Library. I'm thinking that after that, that uh, they obtained the papers and they were organized, uh, Michael Olivas, uh, who was a, uh, uh, both a, uh, a law professor uh, and a scholar, uh, began to organize a major conference in, in uh, conjunction with Arte Publico uh, about Perales. So it was the first major conference on Perales. And interestingly enough, I almost declined the offer to participate in that conference. Um, but I decided to participate. Um, and so for the very first time, all of the Perales papers were finally available to all scholars, anybody now has public access to them. Uh, a, f a few are digitized, most are still a hard copy in the library, uh, but for the very first time, I was able to see uh, the Perales papers. Again, I had used them way back in 1978. I, I probably saw the equivalent of maybe a box at the most, uh, and those materials were mostly from the 20s. So I really had not seen anything else. Um, so I ended up writing a paper for the conference uh, about Perales in the 1930s. And actually, Perales uh, ironically quit LULAC uh, in the late 30s uh, due to uh, internal conflicts uh, and differences. Um, but nonetheless, uh, the conference happened. Uh, I wrote the paper. And while I was working in the archives, I started to see that there were indeed significant, uh, there was indeed significant correspondence between Perales and Slas Vento. 
I also saw that there were some manuscripts there, short manuscripts that she had written that I had not seen before. And so I started to see that, in fact, she was much more important than she had let on. And I could not have known that way back in the late 70s. It was not possible since she did not tell me about more about herself and also uh, because uh, I did not see uh, much of her writings. So ironically, it took the Perales uh, archives and the Perales conference in order for me to see the significance of Adela's Las Vento. Wow. I mean, that's a, that's a long trajectory of getting, get, being able to access her archive. And it seems like serendipitously you you were acquainted to her son at, while at UT um, and he opened up that path, but I mean, different, different experiences that you also mentioned or maybe from reading, you ended up going to UCLA for graduate school and then coming back to Texas to get more, to know more about what was going on with LULAC. But reading and reading your, your new work, I mean, and I say this with all due respect, she was a chingona herself, like <laughs> everything she did. Right. Uh, <laughs> um, yes. And so, and so I have a question, obviously I know the answer, but why did you decide to write a biography on her? And I know you've written on Alice Montemayor. I read that article um, or actually a chapter in the volume. Um, so what made you really want to, what, what was it about Adela that you're like, I need to do this? Um, well, after the conference, what I did is I contacted uh, Dr. Vento, who by that time uh, was retired. He had been a professor of Spanish and also director of Mexican-American studies at UT Austin. And there I had been working as a work study. So I knew him from those days. And I contacted him and I said, you know, we really should put together a small pamphlet of her works. And I was thinking, well, this is going to be like a six-month project at the most. Um, I didn't have plans for anything uh, more extensive. And he was very excited. He said, you know, I've been wanting to put her stuff out there for so many years. This is perfect. And so he then told me, well, you know, I actually have her entire archives. And of course, I didn't know what that meant. So he invited me to his home uh, and uh, I went to his home and he said, you know what? He says, uh, here's what we have. And essentially, I'd say there were maybe five or six very thick uh, three ring notebooks full of her writings. And they were pretty much organized uh, by that time, probably by him, um, chronologically. And so it wasn't a big mess uh, in terms of piles of papers and boxes and boxes. It was something uh, somewhat manageable. Uh, and we started to work on the project together. Uh, we had some uh, differences of opinion. Uh, later, we, we both uh, uh, actually ended up producing two different books, and his book was published uh, in 2017, I believe it was. And his book is really important uh, because it does contain her actual writing. So if folks are interested in seeing her writing, uh, they need to pick up uh, Arnoldo Carlos Vento's book on her. Uh, and otherwise, we, we used similar materials, although, of course, we both use the Adelas Las Vento papers, uh, but in addition, I was familiar with the LULAC archive. I also used the Alonso Perales papers. I used the JT Canales papers. And I used the J. Lou Science papers and other LULAC uh, newspapers. And, and of course, I had been already conducting quite a bit of research on this time period. So I was able to frame her properly. Um, and once I saw the materials, it became clear, as you suggest, that she was indeed a chingona, <laughs> that she was uh, a badass woman, that she uh, was uh, a, a woman of extensive power. And, and her power emanated in a lot of different ways. And 
it's interesting that we, we would refer to her as such because we do have to remember that we're talking about Jim Crow, Texas at the, t- nine, uh, at the time, uh, especially in her work goes from 1927 to 1990. So it's Jim Crow uh, with uh, rampant racial segregation. Uh, also, it's a time where Texas also is very patriarchal, both in the Mexican descent community and in the dominant society. It's highly patriarchal in Texas. Uh, and also uh, in our own community, it's a time where uh, in most of the civil rights uh, organizations, they're segregated uh, by gender, what we call homosocial, men with men and women with women. And therefore, Adelos Los Vento is operating in this context and she's also in the valley, which is the heart of agribusiness and the heart of um, exploitation of both uh, farm workers and braceros. The braceros, of course, being Mexican immigrants who came in 1942 until 1964 and were super exploited by agribusiness under the guise of uh, collaboration between the United States and Mexico. So, so she operates in one of the most oppressive eras in our history, uh, and she nonetheless was able to excel in, in three major areas. She was a- able to excel uh, in journalism, although she was not a journalist. She wrote numerous op-eds and letters to the editors. Uh, she also excelled as a writer in that she wrote numerous politicians, she wrote U.S. presidents, she wrote Mexican presidents, she wrote U.S. congresspeople, she wrote Texas governors, she wrote local officials to protest uh, various uh, conditions. Uh, She also excelled in politics in the sense that she was a major civil rights leader, not so much through organizations, but mostly through her writing. Uh, But again, we also know that in the early 40s, uh, in the Valley area, she helped form something called Independent Political uh, Club. The idea was to not have patronage politics, to get uh, Mexican-Americans, Latinos to uh, pay the poll tax and vote and hopefully elect uh, Mexican-American politicos to office because there was severe underrepresentation. Um, so in, in politics, uh, in, in journalism, uh, she was very much a, a, a very, very important activist. Absolutely. In reading those, that chapter, um, later on in the book, you talk about her Democratic Party politics. I have a question. Can you tell us more about how um, Adela's life changes what we know about Mexican-American women's entrance into politics? What is, is her experience exceptional, special, or is it very, is it similar? What's going on here? Okay. Yes. She is very much an exception. Um, because again, here's what we know is that, uh, first of all, she's exceptional because although she's born to a working class family, her parents divorced. And so her mother, uh, was single raising several children. And because of that, uh, she was not able to finish high school until she was in her early 20s already. So the fact that she does graduate from high school makes her unique and exceptional already. It was still very rare for Mexican-American women to graduate from high school before the 1950s. So she is exceptional. Um, she's also exceptional because she has uh, a sense of mission that, that she has to uh, confront uh, segregation, that she has to uh, confront the lack of political power uh, by Mexican-Americans in Texas. Uh, again, if we think about the time when she started around 1927 or so, uh, there's not a single Latino in the state legislature in Texas in 1927. Uh, most of the mayors, even in the Valley at this time, 
are not Hispanic. So there is not decent political representation. Uh, in terms of the economic situation, there's barely an emerging middle class in the 1920s. Most people are working class, and those people, especially who are farm workers, are severely exploited. And recall that there is no U.S. federal minimum wage until the 1930s. So uh, also as a woman uh, in this time period, most women, uh, if they were working outside of the home, they would have been domestics. In the valley, they would have more so been farm workers. And in uh, cities like San Antonio, they might have been in the uh, garment or candy industry. But they were not in the high-paying jobs. Uh, there were very few professionals, and there were only a handful of women that were at the college level. And I'm thinking of somebody like Jovita Gonzalez from Rio Grande City uh, is an exception as well. She had a master's degree around 1930 or so. But those are very much the exception. So she is unique. Now, an another thing that's quite uh, unique about her is that um, once she, she belongs really to two different social movements. She belongs to uh, what I call the Mexican-American Civil Rights Movement, which begins around 1920 and ends in the early, early 1960s. And she also is a participant of the Chicano Movement, which is also from the early 60s up until about 1978. And typically, we understand people to be part of one or the other. We don't have that many crossover, cross-generational activists. And uh, most of her activism during the Chicano movement is, again, through her writing. Uh, but nonetheless, she expresses the same kinds of tenets of the Chicano movement, uh, ethnic pride, uh, also uh, pro-Spanish, uh, pro-student uh, activism, uh, pro-farm worker rights, uh, pro-Chicana feminism. So she is part of that effort as well. And that's another thing that's uh, quite unique about her. Uh, one other thing I might add is that uh, she does marry uh, in the mid-30s or so. And so we do know uh, that she marries and that she has two children. Uh, and of course, uh, as compared to the man, she has a, a different trajectory because she's now a mother and a wife. And despite the fact that she's a mother and a wife, and then later she, she begins work as a jail matron in the Hidalgo County Jail in McAllen, uh, excuse me, in Edinburgh, uh, she is able uh, to continue her activism, mostly as a writer in her home. So again, uh, I really do think it would be fair to refer to her as the, as the Latina Rosa Parks. Uh, in other words, we now have uh, a concrete name of somebody who fought for decades and decades against uh, racial segregation and racism in a civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And as you mentioned, I mean, she used the resource, resources available to her at the time. Um, and you write a lot about, about uh, what she used, right? Her pen. You, her pen was her tool. She was a public organic intellectual. Yes. Um, and before we get into that, I want to talk about LULAC. Um, I know you mentioned in your in reading the book that her involvement with LULAC was kind of complicated. Can you tell us a little bit about the, those complications with Ladies LULAC, but still having professional connections with the leaders of the organization? Yes. Um, and again, remember I mentioned the 1927 Harlingen Convention. It was all men. Uh, women were not invited. It was kind of like a understanding. There wasn't an official sign that said women are not permitted, but it was the cultural understanding at the time. Uh, and the men in those organizations, and actually the first major civil rights organizations, uh, really appeared around 1921 in San Antonio with the Order Sons of America. 
Uh, but anyway, so following the order Sons of America, which had expanded into South Texas, by 1927, a bunch of those men have organized the Harlingen Convention. And then out of that convention, uh, Perales uh, and Canales and Sainz and, and a few others, they organized the Latin American citizens uh, called the LAC. And uh, they still did not unite all the organizations in 1927. So in 1929 in Corpus, another conference was organized and they said, okay, this time we're going to get all the male organizations united. And so that happened. So when LULAC was founded, League of United Latin American Citizens, it was all men. And the, the founding photo we have, the, the con- constitutional convention photo we have shows that they're all men. Now, Shortly after, what we do know is around 1931 or so, um, even before 1931, we know that women were attending some of their events and some of their conferences, uh, conventions. So we know that women were already interested in civil rights activism. Uh, They were supporting uh, their husbands, their family members, uh, male who were active in this. So what we see essentially is that uh, when there were a few um, ladies auxiliaries that formed uh, and women were active, uh, particularly in Alice, Texas. Alice is about 30 miles or so from, from uh, uh, the Corpus Christi area. So essentially what happened at some point, there were two men in Edinburgh who I think took note of Adelis Las Venta or who took note of women already doing activist work. And they uh, submitted a resolution to allow women to participate and be official members of LULAC. So then the Supreme Council addressed the issue and the Supreme Council agreed. Uh, Unfortunately, we don't have any documentation of what happened at that meeting. But the Supreme Council, which was like a board of trustees, basically agreed that something called Ladies LULAC should exist. In other words, separate segregated councils, homosocial, meaning men with men and women with women, uh, would be formed. And so the Ladies LULAC took off. But interestingly enough, uh, to our knowledge, Adelis Las Vento did not join LULAC did not join Ladies LULAC. However, we do know she had intimate knowledge of what they were doing, and she even provides, uh, writes an article about women on on the boat, uh, the boat or the ship that is uh, uh, moving LULAC forward, and she talks about activist women, not, not specific individuals, but the activist women who are fighting uh, segregation at the time. So ironically, then, she could have had a major uh, statewide and then national uh, leadership post within LULAC, but she did not choose that route. And I think perhaps that she herself recognized that her forte was as a writer and that she was a thinker and that most of her contributions should probably be as a writer instead of attending meetings and trying to forge her activism that way. So therefore, um, we also know that she is a major advocate for LULAC. She pins an early organization on the significance of the LULAC and how it's an empowering agent. Uh, But nonetheless, she is silent about LULAC segregation of women uh, but still advocates both for LULAC as well as the so-called lady or women activists as well. Uh, so that is kind of one of the ironies that the book explores, uh, why she did not uh, join LULAC or ladies LULAC is a central question of the book. Absolutely. And that's that's what struck me. It seemed like she, although she wasn't working within the organization or through the gender segregated um, auxiliary role, it seems like she she had she held some more power. I mean, she 
was able to somehow shape and be in conversation with the leaders of the organization, but also create local influence or perhaps even national influence by using journalism, by using her writing, uh, by using her pen to talk about national discussions. I know reading, you, you write about how she was active in writing about presidential campaigns, writing out against racial discrimination. And something that also struck me in reading your book and, and the title as well is that you title her as a feminist. Yes. And in your book, you talk about how although women in women of Mexican descent in the early 20th century might have not have had a feminist consciousness, but they were conducting feminist acts. Yes. Can you discuss a little bit about her feminist acts and why you you are you have argued she is a feminist that we need to acknowledge her as one? Uh, yes. Uh, first of all, I, I would say that she was conscious of, of uh, men's privilege. Uh, we know perhaps the first and most important public act that she, that she writes about in terms of, of men and women is that she writes an article uh, that says something to the effect why there is no happiness in Latino homes. And she says very overtly, men have all the privileges and rights, and it's expected that women are pretty much just supposed to be in the home. And so she is a feminist in the fact that she does not confine herself simply to the home, although, as I mentioned, she does become a wife and a mother and does, uh, uh, looks like willingly, uh, partakes in that type of wifedom and domestic life and motherhood. And nonetheless, she is active in the pub, so-called public realm, uh, meaning that uh, her activity is way beyond just being a wife and mother. And she inserts herself in local issues, uh, whether it's in San Juan, Texas, whether it's in Donna, Texas, uh, whether it's in McAllen or Edinburgh, and she addresses um, local, state, national, and even international issues through her writing. Uh, so not only is she writing about uh, a, uh, a restaurant, for example, that does not permit me so-called Mexicans to enter its doors, she's also writing about fascism uh, when World War II starts. Likewise, she's also writing about Pan-Americanism and the need uh, to support uh, uh, Latin America. And she also writes specifically about Mexico and Mexico's interests. So she is not just talking about clothes. She's not talking about fashion, family, or furnishings, which is what most women would have been relegated to think and write about in terms of their interest in the newspaper. And so she's a feminist in the fact that she's a worldly thinker, uh, she's a writer, and she does not confine herself to the home. Um, again, in the area of politics, uh, that was still pretty much a male domain. Uh, while women did get the right to vote, uh, for the most part in 1920 due to U.S. women's suffrage, uh, it is still men that are the people who are supposed to be active in the civic organizations, who are supposed to run for office, who are supposed to uh, write the political articles for the newspapers, who are supposed to uh, hold uh, political positions. While she does not run for office, uh, she still is active in numerous campaigns, uh, I think one of the, the campaigns I highlight her participation is a 1948 uh, U.S. congressional election in which Lloyd Benson is running for. And she uh, argues that he is favoring the interests of agribusiness. Uh, we know she's a lobbyist. We know that uh, Benson tried to, uh, he contacted her because she is known at that time in the Valley for her political work. Uh, so she's active in politics. And again, uh, the uh, politics in Texas uh, does not do a good job of including women at this time at all. 
uh, women are very slow to enter into legislative positions in Texas, we're really not going to see great numbers until the 1970s. And of course, we're not going to get the first uh, Latina elected to the Texas legislature until uh, the mid-1970s. So uh, she is uh, very much a feminist arguing that, that women are capable. Yeah. And that's, and that's what I, that's the reading of the book. And, but there's also, it seems there there's also other complications. And this is when you start talking about her identity as a public intellectual and organic intellectual that she faces a lot of constraints. And one of the ironies is that um, most of her counterparts have received honorary titles for their work and intelligence, but not her and her titles attached to her spouse, right? Mrs. Uh, Slas Vento. And so can you talk a little bit about how you're, how you're giving, you're retaking that power and giving it to her in this chapter and how you define her and how you're actually giving her that title of a public intellectual that has shaped uh, Latino history? Uh, yes, I have an entire chapter on her as a public intellectual And there I tried to address the various constraints that are on her in terms of race, class, and gender. Uh, So some of those we're more familiar with. Uh, But one of the things that that you do see in her work is what I call gendered ambivalence. And what that means is that essentially it is very rare for her to say, I am a writer, I am a thinker. Uh, And even in her book, uh, she she excuses herself like please please uh, uh, consider that I am your humble writer or, or uh, humble uh, I am not a writer uh, so she continues to do that and she uses uh, as you suggest multiple uh, she signs her names I think in about ten different ways uh, but you're correct she does not have the title of doctor. Uh, such as uh, Dr. Carlos Castaneda, who would have been a writer, or Dr. George Sanchez. She does not have the title of licenciado, which was the title you would use before an attorney's name, somebody like licenciado Perales. Uh, J. Lou Sines, who also is her co-activist, uh, was called profesor. Uh, so they all have titles, and she does not. Uh, because she is uh, a woman and has been impacted in so many ways because of that. Uh, So she does um, elude notice uh, as an intellectual for the most part. And and part of that is that she wrote uh, between 1927 and 1990, but she wrote uh, mostly in the Valley, uh, which tends to get less academic attention. She also wrote in both Spanish and English newspapers, uh, Spanish more so before the 1940s. Uh, she wrote intermittently. Uh, she wrote in lots of different newspapers, and therefore nobody could see her collective contribution. And again, only with the visibility of her archive could we begin to see that she is a significant figure in our Latina intellectual heritage as an organic public intellectual, somebody that does not have college training, although she took a few English classes, I think in the 50s or so at uh, the local college in Edinburgh. But for the most part, she has not had the privilege of college, uh, and she has not had the privilege of travel or physical mobility the same way that men would have had in, in her time period. Absolutely. And your writings really illustrate that. And it, I feel like it's also a call to how important it is to preserve um, the works, the, any kind of work that leaves traces about Latinas in our, in our, the, the current history that we're writing every day. Um, because if it if it wouldn't have been, it seems like if you wouldn't have serendipitously met a family member, what would have happened to her story? Um, and so I think I feel like it's also a call to the scholars within the fields, multiple fields of academia, to to be responsive to the women um, and how they have shaped 
the experiences of whatever demographic they're writing about. And this this leads to a question that I have about biography. And so what do you how what do you think or what can you say about how biography, writing biography is shaping the field of Latinx history? Um, well, I would say that we don't have enough uh, full biographies. And and you were just talking about the lack of uh, uh, materials either being preserved or their lack of, of, of non-use by academics of materials that have existed. Uh, for instance... Um, the recovery work of uh, the writings of Jovita Gonzalez, uh, they were in both in her home and as well in the libraries uh, for decades without people using them. Uh, <laughs> so really it has to do not just with there not being materials, but there has to be people that are interested uh, in us. And, and, you know, now there's many more uh, Latinas and other people who are doing the this so-called recovery work of our literature and our intellectual heritage, uh, but but there are there's other examples of that. Uh, for example, you know, for a long time we have known about the work of uh, somebody like Marta Cortera, who who wrote the first Chicana history text in uh, probably in the United States, uh, and there is not a full biography of her. Uh, we don't have a full a book biography of Jovita Gonzalez. We actually have very few um, biographies of Latinas, uh, and uh, we have even fewer full biographies of Latinas by Latina historians or academics. Uh, so the field is still rich. Uh, I know uh, somebody like Mario Garcia has done a significant uh, biographical work, uh, but there are still so many other people who are deserving that we don't have full biographies of. Uh, even, I might mention that uh, even the uh, attention has not even been given to Alonso Perales. And on that note, I might mention uh, that Arte Publico Press out of Houston uh, commissioned me about uh, two or three years ago to write a full biography of Alonso Perales. And that book is uh, almost out. It should be out maybe by May uh, 2020 of this year. Uh, but again, Perales has been dead since 1960. Uh, and for decades, uh, I think the Chicano movement uh, really uh, did not give due attention to some of those early Mexican-American activists, and we simply ignored them, or the literature used to suggest they were vendidos and didn't accomplish much. Um, so even people who are elites, uh, such as Perales, uh, J.T. Canales, also we don't have a full biography of him. We also don't have, well, we have one book. I should take that back. We have uh, one book that's been produced on J.T. Canales, but there's still much uh, more materials out there that were not utilized. We don't have a full biography of J. Lou Sines. Uh, we don't have a full biography of Gus Garcia. And those are just the men that I'm mentioning there. So we have so much uh, biographical work to do yet. Absolutely. And, and, you're one of the historians that are opening up this field of political biographies. Um, so we're coming towards the end of the interview. And I think you've already answered this question, but if you have any other projects that you're working on, please feel to talk to us about it. Uh, well, I, I guess the most important project at this point, I, I have tons of projects, but uh, again, the, the Perales biography uh, is almost at, we're in the very last stages of, of, uh, of getting that out. Uh, but uh, Perales, uh, Alonso Perales was born in Alice, and Alonso Perales grew up as an orphan. His parents died. Uh, and luckily, he did not end up uh, as somebody who was depressed, uh, an alcoholic, uh, somebody who ended up on drugs, uh, but instead ended up as a young man uh, with a very strong a work ethic and with a mission and somebody who ended up working uh, 
as a clerk during World War I, uh, somebody who ended up working for the Department of Commerce in Washington, D.C., somebody who went on to get a law degree in, in Washington, D.C., and returned to Texas in the 1920s uh, to combat the racism uh, that World War I veterans and others encountered uh, when they came back from home, uh, having fought for so-called democracy, coming back to Texas and not being permitted in restaurants, uh, children still being segregated in schools, uh, not a lot of uh, working opportunities for people of Mexican descent. Uh, so anyway, so the, the biography uh, basically uh, provides a full, um, a full history of Perales and his upbringing. Uh, he marries uh, a, uh, a middle-class woman from Rio Grande City who was uh, from a Spanish land-grant background. Uh, and he comes uh, back to South Texas, and then he moves to San Antonio in the 1930s. And he really does have a vision for a national organization, and that national organization is the LULAC organization that he is the key founder of in 1929. And he works with the organization extensively throughout the 1930s. Um, he plays a, a very uh, major role in the organization. And LULAC, even without Perales, after he retires from it, officially he retired, but he never really stopped all the time that, that uh, he was an activist all the way up to 1960. Uh, and uh, he is uh, a, a very, very important figure. Uh, and I would basically argue that definitely before uh, the Chicano movement and before uh, somebody like Cesar Chavez, he is probably the most important uh, Latino on the civil rights stage. Uh, we do have some work on Dr. George Sanchez. Uh, Sanchez, of course, was from New Mexico and also became a president of LULAC. But most of those uh, efforts that Sanchez was engaged in were the same issues that Perales had been dealing with and Perales had helped to establish that LULAC uh, national structure that basically uh, allowed uh, somebody like Dr. Sanchez uh, uh, to do his work in school desegregation. Um, but anyway, so uh, I examined Perales uh, as a Pan-Americanist. Uh, also, uh, what many people don't realize is that when he was in his 20s, in the decade of the 1920s, he served on 13 uh, diplomatic missions for the United States government as an interpreter and a lawyer. Imagine somebody in their 20s doing this kind of international work. And he went on to become a consul, a consulate uh, for Nicaragua uh, while he was in San Antonio uh, working as an attorney. Uh, an interesting thing is that uh, he did a work under uh, uh, the dictatorships that existed in Nicaragua. Uh, so he was not a critic of dictatorship in Nicaragua while still arguing for uh, ethnic democracy inside of the United States. So that's one of the contradictions that I explore with Perales. And I also um, examine uh, his relationship with Adelos Las Vento. And let me get back a little bit to the Adelos Las Vento book and Perales. The two really are intertwined in so many ways. And one of the things that I show uh, in the Adelas Las Vento book is that while there was this homosociality, this dominant homosociality within LULAC, nonetheless, she maintained major relationships with three of the major civil rights uh, leaders and activists of the day. Again, that being Perales, Canales, and J. Lu Sines. And so... She was always treated differently than most of the other uh, Mexican-American women in LULAC. Uh, she was treated fairly well by those three men in particular. Again, she wasn't inside the LULAC organization, 
Uh, somebody like, as you mentioned, Alice Dickerson Montemayor was inside of the organization, and she was the one who was arguing for non-sexism within LULAC and more attention to ladies LULAC, more support for ladies LULAC's activities. And she's the one that had to deal with LULAC sexism, while Adela Sloss did not because she was not within LULAC. But nonetheless, all three of those men wrote Adela Sloss Bento. They all had, uh, they had working relationships and they praised her privately in their correspondence. They praised her uh, for her activism, for her intelligence, for her bravery. Uh, nonetheless, she basically remained unknown. Uh, and again, uh, luckily, she maintained all her archives because she really was also an archivist. Uh, she, and again, she's not a professional archivist, but she's somebody who understands, hey, archives are important. Uh, they establish proof. They establish evidence. And, and she kept them for that reason. Uh, and in fact, probably if it not had been for Adela Sloss, it's possible, you know, maybe the family, maybe Mrs. Perales, I don't know if she would have maintained all those papers or not. But as soon as Perales died, uh, Adela Sloss Vento wrote Mrs. Perales and said, do not throw anything away. Make sure everything is preserved. And I, I could imagine on her her dying day that when she died, uh, you know, the, the archives, her, her archives for sure, and those of Perales were still not in any major library. And I can imagine those last moments of thinking both by Perales and Adela Slas Vento, thinking about what was going to happen to my archives because they knew that therein, in those archives, are major, major documentation of the struggles of the Mexican and Mexican-American people, especially in Texas against racism. And Adela Slas Vento, again, has largely been unknown. Uh, and, and one of the reasons that the, the book is titled Agent of Change is because I do argue that she was a formidable agent. And I also tried to show that she subverted U.S. women's domesticity so that she could perform her political act. And for the most part, she has been unknown and has eluded our notice. But ironically, she was a major public intellectual, yet has remained invisible up until now. Your book, your yeah, until this publication of the book. And it speaks to why biographies are important, especially for women, for Latinas. Because um, in a lot of civil rights movement literature, you see that a lot of Latinas are just given a cursory analysis. And it's not until we actually know their whole life cycle that we get to know more of what they actually have done to shape activist, activism for racial and gender justice and to shape conversations that are not just local, but also state and national and sometimes even global. So I really appreciate, I really appreciate the richness of your work and explaining who Adela Slasvento really is. And quite frankly, Dr. Orozco, you never stop amazing us with your writing and so for historians writing about Texas, Latina civil rights and activism, and of course, Mexican-American civil rights organization, your work is foundational and is, and is a must to be cited when any, who, for anybody that's writing about civil rights activism within Mexican-Americans. And I want to thank you for doing the work to make sure that Latina and Latino activists are remembered. Well, thank you so much for, for having me. And, uh, Anyone that's looking for more information, feel free to visit my website at CynthiaOrozco.com and feel free to contact me. There has, we have so many more stories that need to be told. And uh, we thank you uh, and Tiffany uh, and the, the next generation that is uncovering more and more of our stories. 
Thank you. And thank you for those listening to this episode, which featured Dr. Orozco's work, Agent of Change, Adela Salas Vento, Mexican-American civil rights activist and feminist in Texas, published with the University of Texas Press in 2020. If you want to send me a message, you can find me on Twitter, and I encourage you to share this episode with fellow podcast listeners. Hasta la próxima.